0: Today we continue this series called Lithographs, Impressions of Inclusion. We're in the Gospel of Luke during this time of Lent because there are some original masterpieces that are found in the Gospel of Luke that are not found in the other Gospels like Matthew and Mark and John. And so we're taking a look at these masterpieces that have been given to us and seeing some of the big pictures and some of the big themes that we find in the Gospel of Luke. As we get into today's message, we're going to talk a little bit about the stories that Jesus tells us. And these stories are quite remarkable, really, because they kind of put us in the spotlight. They kind of put us in the middle of these stories by identifying with the characters that we find in them. It seems as though we are all tempted to demonize other people in our efforts to define ourselves. We are often tempted to domesticate Jesus to our own liking and self-promotion at times. But the stories of Jesus flip the script, and that's what I want to entitle my message today, Flip the Script. They force us to see ourselves for who we really are. So Jesus uses parables as kind of a periscope to help us see above the water that we find ourselves swimming in. The way that Jesus often interacts with people is quite surprising. When you read the stories, you'll find that he often takes a different direction than the way you thought he was going to go. And so you think that he's ready to blast a Pharisee and all he does is give to that Pharisee a question to ponder. Sometimes you think he is going to come down hard on those who are deemed sinners in the eyes of God, and he says to a woman, look up, where are your accusers? They, I don't condemn you. So over the years, I've noticed that Jesus often flips the script, and sometimes that can cause us to be uncomfortable. A lot of times people don't know what to do with parables. We say, well, I don't know what to do with a parable because I don't even know what a parable is. A parable is kind of a subversive story. Uh, It's teaching its hearers about the meaning of life and faith. And there's about 50 different parables in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John. No parables in the gospel of John. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's about 50 different parables And nine of them appear in these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what's interesting is 16 of them are unique to the Gospel of Luke. So when you add the nine to the 16, there's about 25 parables in the Gospel of Luke, which makes up about half of the parables that we know of Jesus. Now some of these parables are very simple, They're simple analogies, they're similes, they're just metaphors that we can grab onto. But the problem is, Jesus rarely gives us an interpretation. In fact, probably only one parable does he give an expanded interpretation, and that's the parable of the four soils that represent four different types of hearts. Maybe it's because these parables can't be reduced to a single meaning. Maybe they are meant to be teased out. Maybe they are meant to be looked at in different directions so that we can see ourselves in the story. Well, some are simple and some are easy to understand. Um, Some of them are a little bit more difficult to understand because they are subversive. They have a bunch of different interpretive options. But the thing to look for in the stories of Jesus is contrasting characters. There is usually one individual that's set in contrast to another individual, or a group of people in contrast to another group of people. And the way to interpret them usually depends on context. Context gives us clues like, what has just happened before this story is told? What has Jesus just said? What have other people just said? And who is Jesus really talking to in this story? And once you get clear about the context, you could also ask, where am I in the story? Who am I in the story? And once we do that, I think we're beginning to see a little bit about what the parables are designed to do for us. So what I want to do today is summarize for you four parables And we're not going to be able to read every verse because some of them are quite lengthy. But I want to summarize them and draw a conclusion from each of them that I think we can take home with us to better see ourselves. Because I said these parables often uh, shine a spotlight on our own heart. The first parable is the one that I just read a moment ago. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So there's two individuals that go up to the temple to pray, and the context of the parable though is quite interesting. I didn't read that for you, but I think it's important to understand what is going on here. What we find is that Jesus said in verse 9, before he told the story, he said, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this story. So here's the context. Religion has a way of making us prideful, arrogant, and obnoxious people sometimes. Because what we tend to do is think of ourselves as better than other people, and we tend to look down upon other people. And so he tells this story of Two guys that go up to pray. One is a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee is the religious leader of the day. He's a Jewish scribe. He's a Jewish scholar. He's an individual that uh, knows the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures quite well. He usually fasts. He prays. He does all the religious things. However, this respected teacher was an individual that looked down upon the common person. Now, he had an attitude, one of pride, and in contrast is the story of the other man who, in humility, comes before God and prays for forgiveness. So we might say that the Pharisee kind of represented what we often see in religion judgmentalism, hypercriticism, religious hypocrisy, those type of things. And the Tax collector, he's a collaborator with the Roman government. He's probably Jewish, but he's an individual that chooses to make money by collecting taxes off his own people. And the more money he collects, the bigger paycheck he takes home. And so he was a hated individual by the common person. He was no well, no better like than an IRA, IRS agent might come knocking at your door, right? And yet, at the same time, they both have this need to go to the temple, and one who has this abundance of good deeds has kind of this sanctimonious air about him, while the other individual, he's an individual that barely lifts his head up, and in humility, he asks God for forgiveness for all the mistakes that he's made, maybe has some things in mind. Maybe he has overcharged some people. Maybe he has taken advantage of some of his own people. He looks back on his life and he says, I did all of this for money. And what I find is I sold out a lot of people who couldn't afford it. Well, the heart of that story, though, is here's one man who felt, I am better than you are. Second story. It is the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You're familiar with this passage, I'm quite sure, because it's a a close to three parables. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And these collection of stories is in response to this context. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How dare he? So again, some of the same attitudes that we saw in the first parable, but here's the problem. The Pharisees want to control Jesus. The Pharisees want Jesus to carry out their religious veneer. And Jesus won't have any of this attitude that I am holier than you are. And so he tells this story. But it's a story that is based upon something very important. Jesus would have a meal with people that were of common uh, stock in society. He would have meals with people that were in kind of shady vocations. People like tax collectors. People like prostitutes. And it seemed as though these individuals were irresistible to him irresistible to Jesus. Now, if you go out on the street corner and mention that you are a follower of Jesus, you might have people looking the other way because they don't have the same perception of Jesus as these people do, right? They think that Jesus is simply this holier-than-thou individual that wants to kind of swat people across the back and say, get in line. Well, this story is one of a father who has two sons, One is an older son. He is a dutiful son. He does everything that his father wants him to do around the house. And the younger son, he's kind of a renegade. He is wild in spirit. And one day he comes to his dad and he says, Dad, he doesn't say these words. These are my words. You're living too long. I want my inheritance. And I want it now. And the father could have easily said, you have to wait till I die before you get your inheritance. After all, you're not the older son, you're the younger son. Number one, the older son gets the inheritance first so that he can continue to take care of the needs of the family. But this son wanted to go out and sow his wild oats. And the father goes, I will give you the inheritance. So the young boy goes out and he squanders this inheritance on Different types of bad choices, types of riotous living, things that got him into trouble. And finally, one day he wakes up and he's broke. He wonders, what am I going to do? It's kind of the story of every NBA player, I think, sometimes, right? Okay? What am I going to do? So he says to himself, I'm going to go back home and maybe I can be hired out as my father's right-hand man or at least just a servant of some sort. He's making a living by slopping the pigs and eating some of their food to get by. And finally, he makes his way home. And his dad comes out and looks up on the horizon and he sees his younger boy coming up over the hill and he runs out to meet him. He puts his arms around him. Then he looks to his servants. His dad must have been pretty well off. He says, strike up the band. Put the food on the table. Slaughter the best calf you can. My son who was lost has now come home. Well, the older boy who has been dutiful all along gets quite irritated about all that. and comes to his dad and he says, I've been dutiful here the whole time, and you never have thrown me a party. You've never shown that type of generosity to me. And he sours, sours on his brother, sours on his dad, thinks that his dad doesn't care for him or love him. And his dad says, you've been with me the entire time. You've been with me the entire time. You always have the best that I have to give, but that son of yours, he got lost along the way, and now he's come home, and he has been found. Now each of these three parables, a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son, all end the same way, that when they're found, Jesus said, there's rejoicing in heaven, because one who had lost their way has come home. And so here is this attitude of the older boy that represents the attitude of the Pharisees. I'm better than he is. I'm holier than he is. Why don't you give to me what you are giving to him? Third parable is a parable that is often misunderstood. This is a parable found in John chapter 16. And it's the parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Now this one is lengthy too. But it is one that people, I think, misunderstand what the story is trying to say. So it might do well to read this one. It's not real long like the John 15 passage. It goes like this in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate he uh, was a So he called to him, "'Father Abraham, have pity on me "'and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water "'and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire.' "'But Abraham replied, "'Son, remember that in your lifetime "'you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, "'but now he is comforted here and you are in agony.' And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That's quite a provocative parable, isn't it? And most people interpret it wrong because they think it's a parable about hell, and it's not. Remember what I said at the beginning, you have to understand context. And the context is Jesus has been talking just a few verses earlier And he says this about money. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. These individuals were all about money. Making money. Spending money. Using people to make money. Manipulating people for money. So Jesus tells this story. That when two people die, they basically leave every, everything behind, don't they? You can't take it with you, as they often say. And here's this man who has spent his whole life trying to obtain riches. And the metaphor here is it's kind of all burn up. It's all burn up. But here is this humble man who did not have any breaks in life. He's named Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus as in the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. This is a made-up name, a made-up character because the name Lazarus means God sustains. God sustains. And in the middle of life, in the hardships that we face, in in the burdens that we carry, God continues to sustain us as we continue to trust in him for the next day. And so we might say that when religion becomes all about money, when it's I'm better than you are, I'm holier than you are, and I'm richer than you are, Therefore, God's blessing is on my side. Do you see what I'm saying? God must like me more than you. Jesus tells these subversive stories because money, wrongfully so, is often considered to be a sign of God's blessing. So you can still turn on TV preachers and they will proclaim that a sign of God's blessing is God wants you to be rich. Well, I can tell you, God doesn't look very favorable upon me, nor most Christians. Because a life of faith is a life of humility, isn't it? It's a life of dependence. It's a life of trust. It's a life of communal caring and strength that you draw from other people. But not these guys. They didn't need anybody else. They had enough money, right, to care for anything that they need. I'm better than you are. I'm holier than you are. I'm richer than you are. One last parable. And I think you're familiar with this one, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. So this is found a couple chapters earlier in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to tell this parable after a young man, comes up to him and asks this question. Again, context. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So he wants to cause Jesus to trip up, right? He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers the question with a question. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And then the expert in the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, bingo. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then he couldn't stop. The guy couldn't shut his mouth right there, right? And he asked a question. But wanting to justify himself, he asked, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to love? Can't love everybody. Who am I obligated to love? So Jesus tells this story of a man that is traveling and he is accosted by these thieves and he's left for dead alongside of the road. And there's three people that come along, and they see him lying there. One is an individual that you would think would have the heart. We're told in the parable that he's an individual that was a priest that happened to be going down the same road, but for whatever reason, he just kind of steps on over him and keeps on walking. And then the second person comes by and it says he was a Levite. Now a Levite is one of the tribes of Israel, out of which the priests came. Out of that tribe, so in reality you have a priest and you have the tribe that represents the priest. So both religious right uh, connections there. This Levite comes along. Remember, this is probably a fellow Jew. This is not an individual that is uh, an enemy of any sort. And so he kind of just steps around and he keeps on going. Then the story says, along came a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Well, Samaritans were kind of like half-breeds that... They were half Jewish and half Gentile. They intermarried when in the Old Testament the Jews were taken into exile and they started a new life of their own and they intermarried. And so you can say it was kind of a a biracial type of person. But that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make, not about his ethnicity. It's about the way the Jews looked at the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritan because they weren't pure breeds. And so Samaritans were hated and you find this all over in the scripture that there's this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. So this Samaritan comes along and he sees this guy and he picks him up and puts him on his horse and he takes him into town and he finds a place to lie, uh, for him to lie down and he tells the individual that he'll pay for his stay and for his care and that type of thing. And if he owes him anything more, when he comes back through town, he'll even up with them. Well, this story, this Samaritan story doesn't have the punch until I tell you that there was a Christian who was traveling down the road and he was beat up and he's left beside the road. And along came a Baptist that stepped aside. Along came a Lutheran and stepped aside and along came a Presbyterian and stepped aside and along came a Catholic and stepped aside and then along came a Muslim and saw the person in need and picked him up and put him in his car and drove him to the nearest hospital and said I'll pay for his bill. That's the kind of shock Jesus is talking about in this story. I'm better than you are. I'm holier than you are. I'm richer than you are. And this one, ah, I'm more important than you are. I'm busier than you are. I don't have time for you. So in these stories, which is just to tickle your tongue a little bit, are stories that represent our own lives. Some key questions. Do I carry these attitudes inside of me? Am I better than? Am I holier than? Am I richer than? Am I more important than? These aren't the key questions that we should be answering. The key questions that we should be answering are, am I more loving Am I more forgiving? Am I more accepting? Am I more compassionate than I was? Do you see in each one of these stories, Jesus flips the script. The normal script that we would anticipate has been turned upside down. I want to finish this message with a question for you. Where is God... Flipping the script in your life. We have all been raised certain ways. We've all been taught certain things. We've all been conditioned and indoctrinated in a variety of different ways. And we just live out that mentality over the course of our life until God flips the script. So what's this Friday? Anybody know what Friday is? Oh, no drinkers here. St. Patty's Day, right? St. Patrick's Day. Uh, seven years ago, on St. Patrick's Day, I lost my job. I can't believe it's been seven years already, right, Corey? I'd served at a church for 28 years and my thoughts began to change a little bit about this whole stupid game of religion. This game of you're in and you're out and I'm better and you're worse and I'm more important and you're not. And the issue in many ways was kind of sparked by the LGBT issue and the Marriage Equality Act. But you know what? It's taken me seven years to figure this out. That really wasn't the question. I finally came to the realization that I had outgrown America's version of Christianity, of demonizing other people to demonstrate my own rightness that's the big issue it's it's an issue that i have deep deep feelings about because i have a son who's lgbt but the past 3 days when i was writing up this message i was thinking about is that was that The heart of it. Yeah, it's the thing that got me fired because I hang an equality flag and I have a pride pin on my jacket and I love my son with all my heart and I don't care who you are, you're not going to ever, ever, ever make me stop loving him. But then I began thinking, the issue is bigger. Christianity in America thrives on demonizing other people. Oh, well, we'll use other issues. But at the heart of it, at the real heart of it, all the division in our country and between the political parties and between churches is, is I really think I'm better than other people. That's got to go. And so about seven years ago, I went on a journey, and Corey and I can attest that we took this journey together, where we just refuse to demonize other people anymore. Because demonizing other people is demonic. Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? Right? And we must quit demonizing other people for the declaration of self-righteousness. To go back to that initial one that I showed you about flipping the script here, there was one guy who was bowing his head and saying, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Another guy's lifting up his hand and see how great a guy I am, God, But the thing he refused to do was stop demonizing other people for his own self-righteousness. And that's at the heart of what God is doing, I think, in people who are sensitive to his spirit. Are there differences between us and other people? Absolutely. Are there differences of outlook? Absolutely. Are there different levels of comfortability? Absolutely, right? But that should have no bearing on my love for you or your love for me. If the scripture says God is love, what is the thing that he does? He loves. He loves like that father who welcomes his son back after making all kinds of stupid decisions. He loves, he loves like the good Samaritan who stops and helps. And he loves those who in their heart will be humble enough to say, thank you God that you love me like you do. Would you stand with me? Now, Heavenly Father, the power of parables is a power that is so subversive and strong that it might make us uncomfortable. And yet at the same time, it shines a spotlight into us to help us see where you're really prodding us, where you're really moving us, where you're really changing us hopefully we're better people because of it. Hopefully we're better servants of our fellow man. Hopefully we are more loving and caring and compassionate and forgiving. And hopefully, Lord, you're using us in our little corner of our community, wherever it may be, to make our world a better place. Grant to us the ability to ponder the power of the parables of Jesus and help us not to walk away or disregard, but help us, Lord, to engage in a way that changes us into your likeness. For you are a God of love and mercy, and for that we are thankful. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great week.